0: Here we go. Hello. Welcome to Say It Loud. I am your host, Marvin Franklin. New episodes will be uploaded weekly on Sundays. Thank you so much for taking time out to listen today. I truly appreciate your support. Can you do me a favor? In an effort to increase the audience, I need you to favor it if you listen on Anchor. If you listen on any other platform, please like, subscribe, or follow. If you really like it, please share it with someone. These are important messages. If you have any questions, please contact me via email at talktomequick21 at AOL.com. This season's topic is saving, educating, and uplifting African-American males. And my guest for today is Dr. Derek Coleman. He has been working in education in the field for over 20 years. Uh, He's an educator and change agent. He's also a proven turnaround leader. He's currently in his eighth year as superintendent of River Rouge schools in River Rouge, Michigan. He's coming from uh, Detroit Public Schools as an assistant superintendent. Dr. Coleman is a visionary leader who understands the transcending power leadership has on an organization. More importantly, he successfully addresses the challenges plaguing school districts in this new economy by employing expert problem-solving skills to serve as a catalyst for sustained reform. Uh, barring a quote from credited to Booker T. Washington, Dr. Coleman lives by the mantra It is an easier task to raise strong children than to repair broken men. with an impressive professional background, he truly believes his best work still awaits. Citing his roots in Detroit as the foundation for his success, he proudly accepts the torch passed on to him from previous generations of servant leaders steadfast on helping youth overcome the trappings of urban America. Uh, he is also, he completed his doctoral studies from Gwinnett Mercy. He is a graduate of Eastern Michigan University, where he holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Secondary Education and a Master's of Arts in Ed Leadership. Uh, Dr. Coleman, thank you so much for coming on. I got a quick question before you go on. Are you an Eagle or are you a Huron? Both. You Both. Graduated <laughs> Huron. Okay. graduated Huron. Okay. So I'm, I, Say that one more I'm time. A, with, I'm a hero with an eagle on my shoulder. All right. I love it. I love it. I love it. So uh, you've been in the city of Detroit for quite some while. Are you a product of Detroit Public Schools also?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, K-12, my entire experience. I grew up West Grand Boulevard in the Warren area, you know, in the city. So uh, I'm a product actually of the integration of Detroit public schools. So I didn't attend school in my immediate neighborhood. They bust us into southwest Detroit. And that experience was phenomenal because it taught me that the world was much bigger than that 60-block radius uh, where I lived, where everybody looked like me, you know, and everybody was impoverished. So you sent me to a community that was very diverse. And the product of that was, I had a a much more holistic approach to the way I saw the world as opposed to being limited by, you know, again, the seclusion of that community.
0: So do you have family that still are in that area or have they all moved on?
1: Well, that, that area is overgrown with vegetation. Uh, <laughs> there are really no houses left in the area. So technically, yes, my ancestors and the spirits still exist, but physically, no, nah, it's, you know, it's a dead community.
0: Yeah, so my my grandmother uh, raised my father in that area also uh, in Northwest, by Northwestern High School, and uh, I drove by a couple of times and tears almost rolled down my face because all those memories that I have of that area, it wasn't all vegetation, but, um, you know, quite a few uh, homes that are, that need to be torn down and areas that I remember vividly of of playing and gardens and flowers and and all of that. So it's a lot of work that the city has to do to to uplift this area. I know we've done quite a bit of revitalization downtown, but uh, there's some certain areas in the communities that I believe that they have left uh, entirely too much decay.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think those communities will ever be touched or not touched in a way that we would like to see it happen. I just think that as this pandemic has created new norms, you know, those areas are gonna look significantly different
0: than the communities that we all grew up. Yeah. So I know that you're an avid reader and um, one of the things I wanted to talk with you about since I know you're such an avid reader is what what on earth do you think our elementary school boys, black and brown, what should every elementary boy have read? Be reading, uh, and also middle school boys and high school. What what do you think to kind of get them prepared for some of these challenges that we have? I mean, the 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 duality of life, you know, exists. Um, what do you think? What kind of ammunition do they need first and foremost? Man,
1: great question. I think that before they graduate from high school, you know, every Black Boys Should Have Read, Makes Me Want to Holler by Nathan McCall. It's a phenomenal read because it really helps to summarize the the Black experience. You know, and the Makes Me Want to Holler comes from a Marvin Gaye song. And it just talks about the frustrations of being a Black man growing up in a society that the system is seemingly created to oppression. My favorite author now is probably... Malcolm Gladwell so I would you know encourage and it's depending on how their ability to comprehend the content is suitable for school with Gladwell but definitely outliers David and Goliath and it starts with the premise that David and Goliath as we have been told historically growing up in the black church that it depicted David as this poor little shepherd boy But Gladwell gave a different spin on it, and he talked about David actually being um, a a marksman, that there were three types of uh, weapons used during that time. You know, there was the cavalry, there was the sword, and then you had the slingshot. And he said that his ability to utilize that slingshot uh, was phenomenal. And because he had to protect, you know, the the, the, the flock, mm-hmm. the lions, you know, and other animals. And so he was very precise. He was almost a Navy SEAL in his ability. And so it just gave a whole different, you know, spin on David and Goliath as we knew it. So I would say Outliers by Gladwell, Makes Me Wanna Holler by Nathan McCall, and then David and Goliath by Gladwell you know also I read a lot you know it's almost to the point where it's an addiction and I don't really know <laughs> how to stop it so there are a million books but if I'm just trying to give young people something that I believe that they can build off of it would definitely be that but I would also tell them to pay attention to what um, people outside of their community are looking at and so mm-hmm. how do we help them understand real estate you know, stocks uh, and investments, you know, so to feed the spirit, I would look at the Gladwells and Mm -hmm. the Mm McCaws, but outside of that, you know, we're going to look at business, you know, and understand again, the stock market, uh, real estate, the fact that no matter what's invented, God can't create any more land, but he's not creating any more land. So helping them understand economics as well.
0: Yeah. I totally agree. I read, uh, both of those Nathan McCall books he had make me want to holler and uh and another one I think it had the uh Marvin Gaye title as well but I love making one it, it was a bunch of essays yes you
1: know, it was it yes. was different that
0: makes me want
1: to holler it was more written as essays that he had
0: created yes and it it really does so it's a, a young man talking about his growth uh in an urban area and the challenges that he uh, had he had seen as he grew up, and I could identify with Nathan McCall as a youth, like he grew up in Detroit. And he did not grow up in Detroit, but his his upbringing was very similar to the same visions and things that I saw as a kid. Kind of reminds me of Tennessee Coates a little bit uh, with uh, the world and uh, between the world and me. Um, but that definitely had an East Coast feel to it. I could definitely feel a difference in uh, in his youth than than mine. Yep.
1: But I, I'll tell you this too, uh, Marvin. I think that the the educational system that we grew up in and that children are currently being educated in doesn't prepare them yeah. to to compete, you know, in life. And I'm saying that because I'm thinking about books. Mm-hmm. And all of the stuff that I read in school, you know, I'm a, I'm an English major. And so I read the complete works of William Shakespeare, Chaucer, Ibsen, Chekhov, Elliot, Dumas, you know, you name it. Mm-hmm. And it's only been beneficial if I'm playing Jeopardy. Right. I can remember being in college and all of my friends were majoring in education or social work or some service, you know, field. Yes. Then I had friends that were of Jewish descent or, you know, who were just Caucasian who grew up in different areas and they were majoring in finance and economics. And I was asking them, who are you going to work for with a degree like that? They weren't going to work for anybody. No. They were going to create their own companies and employ people and build wealth. And so to backtrack on the question about books that I would have young people reading, if we don't teach them how to operate and how the United States economic system uh, functions, the earlier that you can expose them to it, the better. We talk about the well-rounded education, and it's a lot of stuff that I read that I could have read um, on my own because it was at my leisure. But mm. things that I needed to read, I needed to understand taxation. I needed to understand, again, the the stock market. I needed to understand real estate. I needed to understand the an entrepreneurial way way of thinking. And so the best advice I could give to anybody that's listening to this is expose, you know, our young men and women of color with how do they fit into this economic system because pensions don't exist anymore. So they're gonna spend their lifetimes working to make other people wealthy. Right. And the reality of it is, is that in the absence of a pension, you're not going to work for a company that gives you some security. So how do we create more entrepreneurs is something that I really want this next phase in my life and the work that I'm doing to focus on.
0: I love that you said that. And as you were talking, it made me think of the first time that I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I read it after I finished school and I really felt like I had I should have read it in the 11th grade to prepare for exactly what you're saying. Everything that you saw was the same thing that I saw as far as when I was in college. Uh, you know, there were all of us going into, and us, I'm talking about black men, but black people in general, some sort of service in industry where I was always going to prepare myself to work for someone, as opposed to preparing myself for this uh, more of an open space of what America, what leads America. I didn't learn a, about the stocks and, and how those things flowed until I, I had already had been in uh, education for a long time, where I think I could have definitely done some things a lot differently and helped to support my community in different ways uh, had I seen the world from a different vantage point. So. I, if, if I can cut you off, something uh-huh. I want you to consider: that if you want to become a millionaire, and I don't want to make this all about money, but about empowerment, uh-huh. you find five
1: millionaires and you'll become the sixth. And yes. so, if you think about us, we've been raised that as 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 teachers that you go into this field and a representative from some financial industry comes in to ask you about your four hundred one k bus specifically, it's a 403B or 457, right? And yeah. so they're going to take your money and invest it for you. Yeah. And you're paying them to do something that we could have done on our own, but you're encouraged to do it because that's what the industry says. Yes. Yet those guys who I talked to you about who were in college, I remember them taking out student loans and they didn't need it, but they were literally taking out student loans and investing it in the stocks. Mm. We were taking our student loans to get a refund to go to Briarwood <laughs> Mall and get fresh.
0: Yeah.
1: And so it's our lack of access to this information that haunts
0: us. Mm-hmm. And then by the time we figure it out, we're so far, so far
1: behind, behind. Mm-hmm. that you're now playing catch up. You know, economically, if somebody could have told us that we didn't have to go spend that money on, on new, new sneakers or clothes. Yeah and that we should have been at that point purchasing stocks in Adidas, Nike, the same items that we were buying, we should have been investing. We would have been significantly better off. Yeah. You know, I was. we were paying $80 for Jabot jeans back in the early 90s. And what if we had invested in, you know, Marite and Francois Jabot as a company or, or, or something else. So the most important thing that we can do, and it's not about public education, how do you provide young people with access to information that's useful? Because the, the way society has been established, they've defunded public ed, uh, higher ed and they've defunded it for the sole purpose of making people dependent on the student loan so that when they leave college, they're in debt. And this may shock people, but I'm not trying to send everybody to college. I don't even think the collegiate experience
0: is what it was when we were in school. Mm -hmm. So how do you help create free thinkers,
1: intelligent people that aren't defined by having matriculated through this path that unless their family had the the means to pay for it, Mm -hmm. are going to leave indebted? When the wealthiest people I know that I can see, that I talk to, have no college experience whatsoever. They're either selling something, they're marketing but it's all around finding a consumer for a product. We could still do great work in educating, you know, our young. But we're doing a disservice to our people if we're not talking about economic freedom, and how do we get into that game?
0: You're absolutely right. I'm thinking about a lot of people, just on the on the opposite side of the spectrum, um, people that went to college that studied psychology in our community and then came back to our communities and found out that there is no place for uh, black psychologists too much. we just don't, it's not like we go to another black person to to talk about our problems. We find ways to work through them. And uh, all of those things also, as far as what we we work on, uh, others have, they've just found a different space to be successful. And college is not for everyone. College, uh, I think it's what I've been telling everybody is, I think you should have a college degree and you shouldn't have a trade. I think you should have multiple strands of, of income. You should have uh, the, the ability to understand how to bob and weave out of any of those things because industries, just like everything else, they go, they. They go in, in cycles, they, they are popular now and then unpopular later. Even if we think about right now with this pandemic, school as what we have been prepared to provide for students, I don't believe is ever going to be the way it was six months ago. I think there's gonna to have to be some sort of hybrid model uh, of, of online learning and face-to-face that's going to be limited. Um, forever is going to be changed because I just think this was the tipping point of of, of a lot of different things. So, I, in that, I also want to just ask you so to, just to talk about some of the programs uh, your district provides to support African American boys uh, in everything that you just mentioned, not just going to college, but uh, just preparing for life in general. Yeah.
1: So our our goal is to prepare. Child for college, with the understanding that we're not expecting every last one of them to go. Yes, and I challenge you to find another district that has invested in in people to support. You know the while I know the focus of the podcast, you know, for this season, anyways, is the the black male, but it's kind of difficult. Unless you have a school that is, you know, you know, gender specific
0: to only focus on the black male. Right. So in that process. As black men need role models and people who can meet them where they are to help them deal with
1: their childhood trauma. You know, our our young girls do as
0: well, probably more so because they're more violent than the black male Mm -hmm. uh,
1: for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. And then you just have poverty, which is. In itself uh, and, and it's oppressing so for us what we said was I was able to grow the district and people ask me all the time how did you do it you can't cut your way out of the district I mean out of a deficit and if you don't provide a product uh, or services that people find value in mm. you can't expect the kids to come Right. and so it's very fluid. It's not static. We're constantly sitting up, looking at ways to address needs. So, for example, we have an audio production, um, music engineering program because we know young people like, you know, music so much. And how do you help them become not just entertainers, but writers and producers to understand the entire process of the business or the industry, so that they could leave if they so chose, prepared to walk into, you know, that genre. Um, whether it be culinary, and I'm gonna just address the vocational first because the academic programs everyone brags about, but our culinary program, the auto production, music engineering, we have a partnership with uh, Arizona State University and but for coding camp, because we've invested heavily into technology, we have a STEM school, um, We have dance, we have music, and I don't mean the music production, but Mm -hmm. the old electives that have been eliminated. So, every elective that you can think of, we offer. But we also have a dual enrollment program in partnership with Wayne County Community College. We still provide AP courses, we have a partnership with um, the US Department of Labor so that our young people are able to to dually certify in uh, Microsoft Office Management or uh, CNA when they leave high school. So the academic uh, programs are consistent with everyone's. If you look at our top quartile, our top 25 percentile, students that are in that top 25 percentile, they can compete with anybody. I don't care what the community is. Our top two students went to the University of Michigan last year, our valedictorian and salutatorian. I believe we sent another 14 students to Michigan State Eastern, you name it. You know, all of the in-state colleges have been covered, but we're sending them nationally. We have students who are our, our, uh, we have a a student that sits on our board as the uh, student representative. He's been admitted to the Naval Academy. Mm -hmm. So it's, the academic programs are what most school districts brag about, but how do you meet the needs of the whole child uh, is far more important to me than being able to brag about, hey, these kids are going here. Because if the top 25 are on a track for success, what about the other 75%?
0: Right, right. That's a large number. And as I think about it, so I'm glad to hear about that music part of your, uh, your district. I just saw a special on Dolly Parton, and she is the one who wrote the story, the, wrote the song, uh, Whitney Houston's bestseller, and she was talking about how she smiled every time she heard that song, because although Whitney was doing the work, she was getting paid royalties off of writing a song, so it's, we've got to definitely looking at different spaces. We've got to be very fluid and move in and out of a lot of different things. So it sounds really good uh, about what's going on there. And you also put a lot of kids in division one schools for athletics too. One, I know very yep. well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have. And so what we decided was, you know, we, we recognize that there are going to be some things that are attractive to young people. Mm-hmm. And so, whether it be athletics or just those other extracurricular, you know, uh, activities, we we put a great investment into it. But the investment isn't limited to finances; it's the human capital. You have to have the right people around kids. And if all of us lined up, and if you weren't able to to touch it and just look at uh, a listing of the programs that schools and school districts across the country are offering, they all look the same. They all are gonna say dual enrollment, advanced placement. Um, Last year's class had $6 million in scholarships. Everybody will brag about those things. There's nothing that makes you any different on paper. But in person, if you don't have the right people to pour into young people, they're not gonna be successful. And they're gonna need that connection far beyond them leaving or transitioning away from you because many of them aren't prepared for success at that level because they don't know what it looks like. They're first-generation college students. Parents are doing their absolute best, and so for us, yeah, we take great pride. We are the 2019 Division III state champions in football, uh, where we beat Muskegon, which is the gold standard for high school football in the state of Michigan. But we sent 17 young men to college whether it be naia division three division two division one that uh, college is going to be paid for and we had to help our young people understand that it's not the school it's the opportunity that the school you know provides for you and so i graduated from eastern and taking nothing away from eastern but if you're coming out of high school most people would say hey you want to go to michigan or michigan state Humbly, I couldn't be any more successful had I gone any other place. So we're trying to send our young people to the place that we believe is best for them. And that's why having quality people is so important.
0: So as you talk about human capital, I'll I'll just try to make this comparison or analogy. Uh, I would say that all of the NFL teams have the same types of programs, the same type of lifting Uh, uh, facilities, they have the same type of uh, coaching, the ability to hire and fire the same coaches that have uh, these pedigrees of of success. But the the teams that do well seem like it is the same types of teams that develop in that human culture, right? It's a culture that's missing or uh, is definitely there that shows the most success. Uh, If you were to think about the Lions, the Detroit Lions, they have the same ability to have what they have in New England. But Uh traditionally, over time, we have not. And I would definitely say that it's that human capital, that human culture uh, piece that's definitely missing, in my own opinion. I think that's just telling
1: Yeah, way. My kids get there, and, and when I say kids, I'm even thinking about college graduates. They get into these spaces and because they don't have people that can help them navigate it, yeah. Um they they, they stumble. And so having the right people is far more important to me than it's the greatest investment that you can make in P.
0: Right. So um what book would you recommend all your teachers of African-American males to read?
1: Um, I think it depends on, on the person mm-hmm. because they're all going to be in different spaces. There are teachers who understand content, you know, very well, but who don't understand how to address, you know, the adverse childhood experiences um, and trauma that young people have gone through. There are people who understand trauma but don't necessarily know how to deliver content. So I just think it's a it's a tough question because it would it would have to be determined by what that individual needed. You know, I'll go back to if they're leaders. So for example, we spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time rather investing in my, my district level leadership, which includes my building principals and assistant principals. Because I want them to be able, it's impossible for me as the leader to touch everybody. Mm -hmm. And so in building capacity, it allows them to then share the message and that should cascade through the organization. So it's a tough question. If you talk to me about people who, you know, again, lack empathy, uh, I'm going to prescribe them to read something much different. If you have people who are empathetic and who understand content but don't know how to execute they're going to be looking at something different. So it's a, it's a tough question that I can only tell you, it would be based off of what those people needed. Yeah.
0: So I also have a, you know, through all of the interviews that I've had, quite a few people have talked about um, having the role models. So the role models, if we had more black male teachers, then things might be a little bit better. And when we look at the national numbers uh, we see that uh, it's only two or three percent nationwide uh, African American men as teachers. I just want to quickly ask you: Do you find it a challenge to uh, to recruit and retain Black men in teachers? Are they, you know, when they get to you, are you are you getting a quality product, or it just depends? And it's a national shortage of teachers altogether. So I I, I understand that, but. Um, Just I'm trying to figure out also, uh, you know, where are the the two or three percent that are here? Where are they? Are they coming to Rouge?
1: Yeah. So you're going to have to do spend a lot of time building capacity. It's it's tough Mm -hmm. because most people aren't prepared for what they're getting ready to walk into. And, you you know, you're in school and you're going over your method, your methods, courses and learning about uh, how to create billboards, poster boards and things like that. And then you walk into class on the first day of school and
0: I didn't have a class in college that told me that you're going to hear the level of profanity that you <laughs> hear the most Right. So you're going to have to spend a lot of time investing in, like I said, building um, people. But I had this debate with, um, with DL
1: Hughley a few months ago, and he talked about we need more black male teachers. And I argue that we need need more effective teachers and hopefully they're black males. Yes. Because many of our black male teachers lack those same role models. And so they grew up having survived their own traumas. And so they walk in and aesthetically, they may look like, hey, here's what I want. But underneath that, there's some healing that they had to go through that Mm -hmm. they didn't get. And so you have black males who you don't believe like like young black males, you know, for whatever reason. And you're trying to teach young black men how to receive guidance and redirection from somebody who they probably hate the image of because most of us don't come from homes that have a a black male in it. And so for us, the image of the black male is somebody that is taking advantage of their mother who's abandoned them or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing that I look for is how well does this person fit in my culture? Because there's an expectation of how they're gonna treat young people. I'm recruiting as many black males as possible. But I learned years ago that while you may favor, you know, the black male because of his makeup, Mm -hmm. you know, his physical makeup, you may have missed somebody who would have been better for you. So we're looking for quality teachers, we're looking to train them, we're doing our best to find the black male. Um, we're encouraging young people to go into education as they leave. And we hire our former students every year to serve as teachers assistants during the summer so that they can get that practical experience if we, and go into the education. But the reality of it is if only two to 3% of the teachers nationwide are black males, what percentage of that, Marvin, do you believe have the ability to walk in and provide a level of service that you're looking for. So it's already a small number. And then you get them into your buildings and you're like, man, I gotta help you heal from your trauma while you're trying to help young people. So our district has focused heavily on, we're committed to, like I said, being trauma sensitive and trauma responsive so that if you can understand that people of color or, or people from poverty have these shared experiences and here's how the trauma has left them. While you're trying to deal with the trauma from young people, you're also dealing with the trauma from adults who had those unresolved grievances mm-hmm. from their childhoods. And so we're focusing on building capacity for everybody and we are looking for the black male. But I've probably been more or equally dissatisfied or disappointed because I had a higher expectation for them. But that's my part. Because I had that higher expectation for the sole reason that they are black male, without understanding that they too came up in a very similar system. Or if they came from a two-parent household or from a different community, they might not even connect, you know, with young people the way that they would like. And they experience burnout. So if you don't have a system in place that supports and nurtures uh
0: quality teaching you're going to struggle yeah so i i have to echo that i've seen uh quite a few people trying to run to the image and and say okay well i'm meeting this quota and the truth of the matter is you do need quality uh, not the quantity, you need quality. And they do have, they come with a lot of baggage. And that's part of the reason why I think this podcast and this project is so important, so we can start developing and building. Uh, we're asking the questions and trying to find out what's successful so we can start to d- increase that pool, you know, so to speak, uh, all together. We've got to have good black men on all fronts. And we do exist in, in many areas, um, but not nearly enough. We've we've got to do a whole lot more of reaching back and pulling up some others that might have a scar or two, or a little dusty, and, and brush them off, and, and let them know that uh, you know some of these traps that are right around us are are some things that we we've got to do. It's not something, and it's not just for us, our own self. It's for for all of us, all parties involved. I, you know, the podcast is about African American males, but for the for all intents and purposes i need black men to be good for black women and and brown women and black and brown men like everybody white men everybody we this is just one subgroup to the big part of the entire story you know it's just it's one piece of the puzzle yeah, and I, but i do
1: want to say this but when you find it um and then it works man Yes. It's, if nothing better because the the, the, the the young men and young women in the building gravitate towards them because it's a unicorn. It's rare. It's something that they haven't seen much of. And that person becomes um, the most valuable person in the building because it represents something that's so, so rare. It's esoteric. And so when we find it, man, we celebrate it and we're constantly – trying to replicate it i just don't want people to believe that it's a simple task because they come and the work is extremely difficult because they've been you know but for, for they've been for their lifetimes exposed to the same things you know mm-hmm. and so it becomes tough And we just have it's an unfair expectation on them that once you find them you're gonna come in and and be great it's going to Take a commitment to developing that, and that's what we do during our staff meetings. I do want to be a little more specific. Our staff meetings are no longer just sessions where people come and talk about uh, issues that are pointless. We're consistently focused on how do you build capacity and keep pouring into people, because what we're asking you know teachers to do is something that no other no other profession has the same demand on. So police aren't blamed for all crime, you know, in communities. Firefighters aren't blamed when, you know, you see uh, homes that are set ablaze or you couldn't save them. Educators bear the brunt of the ills, you know, of public education. So if the family is dysfunctional and they're sending us somebody who requires so much remediation, that just
0: to get them where they were was phenomenal we don't get credit for that. We get blamed
1: for, because they weren't proficient.
0: Right.
1: So we have to spend a lot of time devoted to just becoming better.
0: I totally agree. And that's going to be a perfect segue into uh, the last piece. Uh, I have a just a small segment from uh, Naeem Akbar's book, Visions for Black Men. And I'm just going to read a few parts of it. And I just want to I would like for you to just give me your thoughts and your ideas about uh, what he says. Uh, So Naim Akbar mentions transformation is a process which characterizes the entirety of the universe around us and it is an implicit part of the human possibility. The only difference is that the caterpillar will either have to become a butterfly or die. One of the interesting things about the human being is that he can stay a worm forever and appear to be a thriving form of life. We never have to become human butterflies to appear alive in this world. One of the things that is unique about the human being is that he has an option that either he will be or not be. If he chooses to be, He can die proudly as a slimy, hairy worm. The point of our discussion is that we need to understand that we all have the potential to be butterflies. Knowledge is the key to getting where we need to go. He also says in this discussion, we will talk about the transformation of African consciousness, moving from the level of maleness to boyness all the way to manness. What do you think about that? I know it's a small piece, but what do you think?
1: Um, man, it's deep. And as as he was talking, I, I thought about what is the expectation of the black man, you know, and in terms of that transformation. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that there's another group of people or a race or gender-specific that has the the same expectation and oppression that the black male has, and so I don't know if it's fair that to believe that 100% of us mm. will go on to become great men. W.E.B. Du Bois talked about the talented tenth, mm-hmm. and he said that it would take that talented tenth to hold up the rest of um, you know of our race. Mm-hmm. And so would, you, would we go to uh, men of Caucasian, you know, European descent, Jewish people, uh, Hispanic people, none of them have the same expectation or weight that we do. And yet none of them have the same system that from our inception has been designed to, you know, keep us at bay or destroy us. So I think that in theory, you know, I agree with him, but I think that the reality is to believe that 100% of us are going to be able to do it isn't realistic. And so for those that won't become butterflies, I don't, you know, I, I, I may have taken exception It says he could choose to die proudly as a slimy, hairy worm. There, 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 there's a place in society for the slimy, hairy worm. doesn't mean that it's a negative thing. There's this ecosystem that we're all... A part of, and it has to be balanced. So, I, I, I firmly believe that we could do a better job as people of maximizing our potential. But I think it's unfair, uh, for lack of a better word, to expect that all black men are going to have to just become the greatest manifestation of who they are or they feel. When we've been emasculated since birth. Um, you know, and I keep using the word expectation. Yet the expectation for us is that in spite of all of the systematic oppression that the world has placed on us, that we're going to be able to rise above that. And no other group of people have that belief or expectation of them. And then when it doesn't happen, no other group of people are dogged as badly, you know, as we are. So how do we find a space that we fit in, whatever that space is, and contribute positively to society. I think is what we should be focused
0: on. Yeah, it's a challenging piece for us. I, I understand, and I feel that um, they definitely uh, talk about our our challenges, our our wins, our losses, our successes. I think at an elevated rate, you know, we you hear about our failures, and a lot of those failures, I think we were uh, destined with all of the different birdcage wires uh, of traps for us more than any other, I believe than any other race. I think there've been yeah. all of these challenges that they put in front of us. They put uh, these things for us to be unsuccessful. I think that when we do rise up, we show them that we have been, We, I think we are the poster child of resilience, right? I mean, it's For everything that has happened to us, and as controversial as it may sound, I still believe that slavery was much more of an atrocity than any other atrocity that we've had uh, in this life. And we are still, and we are making incremental progress. I don't think that that is what is uh, defined or talked about nearly enough. We are making progress. And our timeline seems to be skewed, but when you take out a, a large chunk of our history and and utilize it for uh, free trade, free uh free labor, uh, it it puts us at a different starting point than everyone else, right? So everybody who who decided to come to America for whatever reason, even if you came. Uh, without having much, you you weren't identified, you weren't seen as a certain thing because your skin color was different, you had different opportunities, and even to this day, they still weave into a lot of different things, ways for us not to be successful. So um, I thought Naeem Akbar was, you're right, he went hard in the paint, <laughs> and uh, I think he's, you uh, in many ways, he wants us to get our stuff together. <laughs> yeah, but as a collective,
1: and I just think that's the difficult part. Yes, I firmly agree with what he said though about knowledge is the key to getting where we
0: need to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but that knowledge is going to have to be shared. So if you had
1: a a a, a village full of intellectuals, mm-hmm. we still need people that are going to be builders. Yeah, uh, people that are going to be
0: warriors. Yeah, and so I firmly agree with the knowledge piece. I
1: just think that to believe that everyone will be, you know, the will represent the highest uh, levels of academia within us is going to be difficult. I think that we need leaders who can then say, Hey, we need to make certain that
0: we have enough of and of is underlined." the yes, yes. So that we can have a productive society. Absolutely. I want to say thank you again. I appreciate you spending this time with me. Uh, Also, the listeners, if you're just now getting ready to finish listening up, I'd like for you to definitely go and like and subscribe uh, to this podcast. Uh, This has been a wonderful series. We're going to do some things a little differently in the next season. I've got a couple more episodes to wrap this up. But uh, I definitely have to tell you, uh, Brother Coleman, uh, stay safe. God bless. I appreciate you. Uh, This was really good. And uh, I look forward to seeing you pretty soon. Yep,
1: yeah, appreciate y'all. Uh, Thanks for the opportunity. I know that my my views are probably a lot different than most people would believe, but I just thank you for the opportunity to share my thoughts.
0: Hey, this is all all up all collectively. We have to put this thing together. You're right. So we don't have when you play chess, uh, all of the pieces aren't kings and queens, right? You've got several different pieces. Uh, and the way that the, it's successful is that we work in unison. We all have a, a part to play. So God bless you, brother. I appreciate you. Stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon. Yep,
1: same to you and yours.
0: Uh, mm, bye-bye. After the Egyptian and Indian, the Greek and Roman, the Teuton and Mongolian, the Negro is a sort of seventh son born with a veil and gifted with a second sight in this American world, a world which yields no true self-consciousness, but only lets him see himself through the revelation of the world. It is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. No one ever feels his two-ness. An American, a Negro, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body whose dog strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. The history of the American Negro is the history of this strife. This longing to attain self-consciousness, manhood, to merge his double self, into a better and truer self. That's by W.E.B. Bois, from The Souls of Black Folk. Thank you so much for listening. I look forward to hearing, having you listen again next Sunday. Take care. I'll see you then on Say It Loud.